Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for tuning in. Folks, I am so excited about today's topic and the guest. We're going to talk about an animal I've always been fascinated with. We are going to talk about sea turtles. But not only are we going to talk about sea turtles, we are going to talk about a very unique program. It's called the Sea Turtle Second Chance Program going on at the Pittsburgh Zoo and PPG Aquarium. It's one of the very few zoos in the United States that actually rescue, rehabilitate, and return back into the wild sea turtles. So I'm so excited to have on sea turtle expert and rehabilitator, Josie. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun. I'm so excited. So what is your official title? Sea turtle rescuer? I'm trying to get it right. Yes. Sea turtle coordinator. Yeah. So I bring in the kids and send them back out. Yeah. So I live, so I'm based in Idaho, a landlocked state, of course. And so a lot of people of my listeners, even globally, might not understand what is going on. So why are these sea turtles um, needed to be rescued? So uh, sea turtles face all kinds of issues all year round. And that's something that we've, we found, especially being in Pittsburgh where there's, we're not, we're in a landlocked state, just like you, um, not near the coast. Um, but it's a full time year round business, um, rehabilitating turtles in the winter time, usually between Thanksgiving and new year's, um, on the East coast, we have cold stun season, which means that a bunch of these sea turtles, um, will end up in cooler water. Um, and they can't regulate their own body temperatures like you and I can. And so they become hypothermic. They end up with pneumonia. They stop swimming, um, they'll start starving, and then they become really easy prey. So they come in with sometimes with other wounds. Um, and we know that this happens every year. It doesn't matter necessarily what the weather patterns are, or the circumstances, we expect them. Um, just it depends on what the circumstances are for the year as to what the what the severity of the season is going to look like. So some years we've had record-breaking numbers of rescues um, and others they've been kind of within normal limits. Um, it's been it's been kind of active the last several years, though. So these guys will just eventually end up washing ashore and they need help. Um, they need immediate, they're critical, they need immediate care. Um, so there's these great this great network of volunteers who are out there receiving these guys, transporting them to rehab facilities all along the coast during the winter when we like spending time with our families they're out there in the cold and the in the elements, and they're bringing these guys in, and they're starting rehab. Um, when these guys get stable, depending on the type of season that it is, um, we never know when Mother Nature is going to stop kicking these little gifts on shore, um, and so that can be. An, a capacity issue for institutions all up and down the coast. They run out of physical space for these guys. So we really stepped up to the game. Um, level, several years ago, we decided that we would like to participate in this rehab and rescue effort. And so we've said that no matter how far away you are from the coast, you can always be of assistance. It might be a different type of assistance. Maybe they need our physical presence. They need more warm bodies out there to start bringing these guys through and processing them. But in most cases, they need to be able to kick out some of these these guys that are stable that need long-term rehab. They need to send them somewhere else so that they can take on these critical patients and maybe get these other guys that are ready to go back out. Um, they can get them closer to the uh, the ocean, you know, in a, in a shorter amount of time and with much less money involved. So um, we have fit a niche in that regard. And then when we're done with cold stun season, you know, spring's coming and everybody's sending turtles back out into the ocean. So they're all starting to make their trips down to Florida and getting back out to the ocean when it's getting warmer. Um, then you get into hook and line, you get in 
offshore boat traffic. We're all starting to get back to the beach. And that's a huge threat that these guys face. Every species all up and down the coast. So you see a lot of boat strike. You see a lot of hook and line and entanglement. Um, these really beat up kids. And, uh, you know, they need a place to go and to get well. And sometimes they don't have a, a great prognosis. But um, oftentimes you can't count them out. They're very resilient creatures. Um, so it has, it can just become a year round job. Um, and we've really, really tried to step up in Pittsburgh and we've really tried to offer assistance in the way that we can without being the closest in proximity. Um, and it's been really, really great to be a valuable part of the resources. That's great. And so just to go back to cold stunning, let's talk a little bit more about that. So are these the turtles that literally did not make it down to warmer waters? These guys are just, they're stuck. They just completely get stunned in these cold waters off the coast of what, you know, New York, New Jersey. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, they'll be all up and down the coast. So we kind of have what we call the Northeast Network runs from Maine about Virginia. Um, and so that's whole one whole region and network of facilities and partners that all work together and collaborate on rescues there. Um, a lot of those cold stun turtles, they're usually the Kemp's Ridleys. So they're the smallest and most endangered of all seven spe- species of sea turtles. Um, they're the hardest hit during these cold stun season months, um, but they usually get kicked out of the Gulf Stream right there in Cape Cod Bay. So New England Aquarium gets hit hard. I mean, they'll get 200 easily. Um, and so they're sort of the hub for these cold stuns. And then they just sort of disperse them out through the network as they can start turning them over. Um, so we know that they know that they expect it, but sometimes they've taken in 800. I mean, they've taken in a huge numbers. Florida is kind of its own separate beast. They have a whole lot of coastline for just one state. So the good news for that is there's a tremendous amount of rehab facilities just in that state. So very few times do they have to reach out to the Northeast Network for assistance because they can kind of disperse them through the Southeast. They need help from just physical presence. They need more um, skilled care to come down and try to do, you know, if it's vet therapy and things like that, um, they need more, more skilled staff to come down and help participate and process these guys. But two different types of cold stunning kind of occurs between those regions, the Northeast and the Southeast. When we see them as hypothermic turtles in the Northeast, their body temperatures are sometimes 50 degrees and below. And to put it in perspective, they like to be as warm as we are. So they really prefer to be, well, they like warmer temperatures like we do. They like to be, you know, 72 degrees, something like that. So 50 degrees is a shock and sometimes below that. When they strand in Florida, they might cold stun, but they might not be as cold a body temperature. So they might not have as severe of pneumonia. They might not have to be in a rehab tank for nearly as long. So they might have a turnaround time of their turtles in their cases of maybe a few days. And of course, they're right there by the ocean, so they can kind of turn them around. So they get a huge number of them. But their their cases processed in some t- in some ways a lot faster than in the Northeast. Our our rehabilitation can be si- three to six months, um, sometimes longer. So just depending on okay. That. And I was just about to ask that. Okay, yeah, ask how long. Okay, so in, in, in what species again are you seeing? You said the you said the the Kemp Ridleys is is that yeah. what it's called? The Kemp Ridleys. Yeah, the Kemp Ridleys. Ridleys. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're the smallest and okay. most endangered of all seven species. They they will strain in the Northeast in the greatest number. Um, which is sort of a shame um, in that in that way. Although I will say, because we're seeing such a large number of them and we can't do an accurate census count of, you know, the mid-Atlantic, <laughs> unless we see them wash on shore, it's almost kind of encouraging to see that there's large numbers of these guys out there. So while we're continuing to rehabilitate them and get them out there, maybe the numbers are, um, it's, a, it's a better indication of what's really out there swimming out there in the mid-Atlantic for those first 10 years of their life we call the lost years. So maybe we're seeing an indication of that. But we'll also see greens. Uh, we'll also see the loggerheads. 
We really don't okay. see hawksbills up in the Northeast. They tend to be down in Florida or in the Gulf. Um, so we don't tend to see them. We do see leatherback stranding. So, you know, the largest species, but those guys don't go into rehab facilities um, just because of their life history strategies. So um, they're usually, if they're being rescued or recovered, uh, they do much better because they're their diet is primary is jellyfish. Um, I couldn't culture enough moon jellies to keep those guys or nettles to keep them fed for a day. Um, so we know that about them and just their sheer size that they actually do better. If we would triage them right there at the beach, kind of pen them in, give them supportive care and analgesics if they need it, um, make sure that they're comfortable if they need steroids for two days or something, and then try to get them back out there because the sooner they can get foraging on their own, the better off they're going to be. But the leatherbacks are just that, that other case. So all of Ridley's aren't in our region. So we don't necessarily worry about them and the, and the flatbacks are endemic to Australia. So we haven't had a flatback yet. So take me through the life history of a sea turtle. When I think of sea turtles, I think of, and I'm sure listeners do, I think of Costa Rica, them on the beaches. I don't think of having them end up in the Northeast. Explain that. Oh, yeah. So they have a very wide range. These guys are circumtropical. And a lot of and a lot of these species, you're talking about the greens and the logger ba- the loggerheads. Um, those guys in particular are found all around the world, you know, near the tropics. And they have great migratory patterns. Um, now, we when we talk about the numbers being threatened and endangered, we'd like to think of the species as a whole. But there's actually subpopulations of, say, there's the Northeast um, Atlantic population of loggerheads. So we kind of have a sense of count of those guys there's the southeast so we know where these guys move we we give them pits and microchips and we can kind of figure out where they migrate to and they're very very site specific so when we take these guys back down for release in florida because we know that they need to get to warmer waters they're going to end up migrating back up to if they were rescued in virginia they're going to stay really really site specific to that and we know that we've been able to track them through i think we had a grandparent um, nesting population come back and use the same nesting beach in North Carolina, South Carolina. So we know this information about their life history. They're very, very um, specific to a a region. Um, But their species are found throughout. So we know that when we rescued these guys in really cold waters in, in Massachusetts and they come to Pittsburgh, that they're not imprinted with the time that they are in rehab. The imprinting happens in the nest, and that's where they're going to go back to, and that's where they're going to have their young. Um, so and they're, and they're nesting, and sorry to interrupt, so they're nesting in like North Carolina, warmer places like North Carolina, Florida? Oh, yeah, all along the coast like that. Yeah, there's um, a lot of nesting that happens in the Outer Banks, so... The first part of how we started with the Sea Turtle Second Chance program was actually with rescuing little loggerhead hatchlings, which was really, really great for our zoo. They were kind of our our bread and butter. This was a new program that we started and trying to get people excited about having sea turtles here, but not just to go on exhibit, a real active conservation message. And so we had these guys um, who were these little little neonates, little post-hatchlings that came to us um, for a plethora of different reasons. And one year we had one named Ghostbuster, who I'm particularly fond of, um, who was rescued from the pinchers of a ghost crab. And when you're out there walking along the beach and you see these little ghost crabs scurrying along, they're out there at night for a reason, because usually these little hatchlings will hatch from the nest and these ghost crabs are trying to pick off a meal. And so a passerby saw this little ghost crab pulling this little hatchling into his little burrow and they were able to rescue him. So we ended up having him here and kind of monitoring him for the next year or two and could, could see his little battle scar and stuff and told his story. And for being a public zoo that reaches a million visitors a year oh my goodness who can't wrap their arms around this adorable little fluttering 
loggerhead hatchling who just wants to eat anytime somebody wants to walk by and tell the story about when you're when you're at the beach with your family you could very likely run into this scenario they nest when you like to be there so rather than picking them up and throwing them in a shoebox and taking them back to your super cold air-conditioned beach house maybe here's the steps you can take and it became a really great topic for discussion so we started with those loggerheads because everybody in western pennsylvania goes to the outer banks everybody goes to south carolina everybody goes to florida it's very relatable and I really appreciate conservation messages that don't feel like you're beating somebody over the head with a message, but you're really just trying to make sense of a situation. A lot of folks think that you go to the beach and they're going to set up their tent and their beach chairs and we're here for a week and we promise we'll take all of our stuff down and our the litter's going to garbage, we promise. But what they don't understand is if they don't take that that beach tent down every night when it's nesting season, and it will be when they're there, I'm sure of it. Um, it might be that one time that you decide to tuck in at night and that female wants to haul out and lay one of her three nests for the entire season. And if they bump into that beach chair and mama tries to dig her nest and she gets distracted or spooked, she will go back in, turn her turtle butt around and go back into the ocean and drop those eggs in the ocean. And that's 130 chances to get that turtle off this endangered species list. And all of a sudden, that's when it matters. I promise you that family will go to the beach next year and they'll remember that because they'll see this little teeny tiny hatchling that was rescued, that was a product of that, and they can be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. So they wow. were a really great thing. So that's and then we got to release them. So everybody loves to release them. So that's that always gives somebody everybody gets very invested. We don't have a billion sea turtles here. So the the few that we would have, people get very interested in and very connected with. And it feels like we're all raising them together and we all go to the beach together and we all send them off. So it's very fulfilling as a keeper, but um, it's really great to have such a supportive community, such a generous population around here that just can, they've had, I've had teachers who've made it part of their curriculum that in the morning they, they check on um, seaturtle.org to see if we have a, a transmitter that's going. And the class kind of checks in on Ghostbuster to see what he's doing out there in the mid-Atlantic. When we're freezing our butts off, he's in 75-degree water. And that's how they start their day. And it's just cool wow. to be connected like that. Yeah. That is so cool. That is so interesting. Okay, so what is the, the – and I don't want to put you on the spot. And if you don't know, that's don't okay. worry. But what is the northernmost part that they will actually nest, sea turtles, along the East Coast? What is the northernmost part? Is it North Carolina uh, or is it – Oh, no, no. They'll head up to, they'll see some nests, I think, in Massachusetts. Um, very, very few. The The highest density of that is really, um, really like Virginia South. I think it's great that, yeah, that someone rescued that little baby from a ghost crab. Yeah, yeah. We've had, um, you know, hurricane season also happens during the time that these little hatchlings are trying to survive. And we had a year when we had one that was actually a washback. And so, you know, folks think about, we have coastlines of these really great volunteers, especially in the Outer Banks and hurricane-prone destinations. You know, Virginia's kind of on the outside of that, but, you know, North Carolina gets slammed with them. And they have a huge density of nesting that happens. And so there's these volunteers who know that all of the nests are marked, um, and they check these guys and they certainly know when they expect them to hatch. So there's always a beach patrol in the morning and in the evening. Um, but if there's an impending hurricane, they will go out and they'll try to dig those guys up and they'll relocate them to behind the dune lines because they know that they'll get washed away. 
in some circumstances, um, they, they can't prevent it, you know, always, they can't rescue them, but we've had little hatchlings that made it out to sea. They might've hatched and then they're found on shore, like kicked way up into the brush and they're not meant to cruise around on land. They're not good little crawlers for any amount of time or length. Um, and so we had one that came back that was actually a washback. And that was again, a really nice scenario and teaching tool about it's not always human impact, but if you want to know why one in a thousand of these little hatchlings live to reproductive age, this is another reason why, because their nests are in a hurricane area and this is just a natural threat that they'll face no matter what, but this is a likely scenario. So it's again, a, a really nice case study and a really great form of outreach. And that was just the beginning for us with the Sea Turtle Second Chance program. So we've grown just like those turtles have. We've grown since then too and gotten into rehab more with the cold stuns and critical cases. And um, so we've really, really grown. It's been a lot of fun. It's almost, I think almost 10 years and it's just crazy how much time flies. So. Yeah. So how many turtles do you have right now in your right uh, now? Turtle second chance? Yeah, so right now we have one uh, 80-pound loggerhead that came to us um, from Virginia Aquarium. It was actually a hook-and-line scenario. So this was a cold stun sea turtle, so came in in the wintertime, came into Virginia. Um, and a, an issue that a lot of rehab facilities have is that with these loggerheads, um, although they're not the ones that strand um, in the highest numbers, they usually will strand in a larger size. So when you talk about trying to put... Um, get the biggest bang for your buck for capacity and rehab, we could put the equivalent of maybe five or six Kemp's Ridleys in one tank because they'll play nicely with each other and they'll rehab really well together, even though, you know, sea turtles are solitary by nature. But Kemp's will do fairly well together in a tank with, um, with larger numbers. So we know we can get more out of that. A loggerhead does not play nicely. So we know that if we get a loggerhead... It's like one per system because they'll end up picking on each other. They have big blockheads. They're very, very powerful. And you don't want to end up having to do wound therapy on top of rehab and everything else. So it's like one turtle per tank. So when you talk about facilities who may also be involved in seal rescue right after sea turtle season, these loggerheads chew up space and infrastructure very quickly. So the need for us this year was not to take 15 Kemp's Ridleys. It was for us to take one really large loggerhead that was chewing up space for other turtles and also their impending seal pup season. So, um, so Cobb's been here with us for oh, a little over a month and a half, and he's been a really Cobb? great patron. Cobb? Cobb, Cobb, yeah, C O B B. Like, like, like. Evidently they went with an island naming theme and I didn't know, but Virginia has Cobb Island. So we all learned something oh, out of that okay. one. <laughs> I was like, why did you name it Cobb? Were you like having yeah, a barbecue or something? Like, I don't know. Sometimes they go with like an ice cream flavor theme. One year was Marvel characters. So yeah, this okay. one was an island theme. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so how long have you had Cobb? Uh, like uh, almost two months now. Yeah, he's been pretty quiet. So he's actually been cleared for release. So we're planning his release for hopefully next month. Yeah. Oh, see, I want to get the invitation for that. That would be <laughs> awesome. Talk about the perks. I'm going to yeah. talk to Tracy about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a really good one that you should be a part of next. If Whenever you're ready to start talking about Harbor, buckle up. Okay. We've got a good story for you. Okay. Sounds good. Well, okay. So really quick, I just want to go back. We will touch on that. I just want to go back to Cobb. So what is the day-to-day like when you're rehabilitating a sea turtle? I mean, I I, re, I have, you know, rescued and rehabilitated reptiles. I mean, obviously, you know, nothing in comparison to a sea turtle. So what is that like? Is Cobb eating well? What is he eating? 
Yeah. So as far as um, rehab patients are concerned, he's he's kind of unexciting for us. Um, he he came to us after spending maybe about two months already in Virginia. And like I said, he pneumonia, so he wasn't cleared to go back out to the ocean and they really needed space. So it was kind of a, a move based on them needing space and him just needing a little bit more time. So sometimes they'll end up needing more, uh, more therapy. They're going to need some um, antibiotic treatment, more radiographs, and that's a fairly constant daily thing. Um, but for Cobb's um, purposes, we really just needed to do some follow-up diagnostics, um, watch his feeding behavior because um, he was rescued in Virginia, which has near Virginia Beach. He was actually found on a golf course is what his records were saying. So he made his way there. Um, and what I noticed about him is he was being selective about feeding, um, but he wasn't taking what we call a broadcast feed. And what we want to do with these releasable guys, even when they're not releasable yet, we know that they're heading that direction. We don't want them to have any more human interaction than they need to have. So we just toss food in the tank and we stand back and we observe and take a very hands-off approach. Um, he was not taking his food and a loggerhead should eat and home at any at any cost um they are like garbage disposals so we were putting food in there and he was swimming over his food but he wasn't necessarily taking it so the thought in my mind was he was trying to eat like shellfish um so we have like clam and fish um just a bunch a different variety so he likes some fatty stuff so we were trying to get him um any kind of seafood that we could shrimp you know mollusks thing like things like that but he was swimming over that stuff um then I went to feed him with tongs just to see if he was having some sort of an anorexic issue or there was something underlying that was going on that was keeping him from wanting to eat or if it was a behavioral thing. And he came right over to the feeding tongs immediately, which was a huge warning sign to me. I was very relieved that it wasn't a clinical issue. It was a behavioral issue, but also a big red flag. But if you think about where he was rescued from, Virginia Beach has a ton of fishing piers. Chances are good. The reason he was so comfortable coming over to my tongs is because he's gotten most of his meals off of a fisherman's hook. And he doesn't have anything inside him, but that's kind of unnerving when you think about him going back to the ocean, that this is, this is a learned behavior. He's not going to work harder for his food or forage hard because he doesn't have to. Um, and that's a huge issue that North Carolina and Virginia Beach will see with these guys. So do fishermen commonly catch sea turtles like that? Yes. I didn't even. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And Virginia Beach is very, and a lot of these coastlines with these fishing piers and North Carolina included in that too. They have a huge outreach program with their rehab teams also go out and do surveys and try to work with the fishermen who sometimes are less than pleased to work with us and biologists because it's their livelihood. Um, but trying to understand that if you get a guy on a, you know, get a turtle on a hook, please don't try to take care of that yourself. Here's all the numbers and the informations to call, you know, information to call um, so that we can record it. We can log these trackings. We can find out if there's repeat offenders, things like. So I'm jumping to conclusions without knowing the the facts, but I'm, I'm not surprised by what I saw in his behavior. So, so yeah, where he was kind of boring as far as the clinical thing, it was an interesting view into what a long-term threat for what we think is probably a 25-year-old turtle, um, a life history strategy and ad adaptation that he's had and a major threat that they face. So, so yeah, it's wow. kind of interesting for that, but he's good. I gave him tough love. I have four children. So I am, I will get him to eat how he needs to eat and he is not going to take it off of tongs. So, um, so we just had, it took us um, two days of me just kind of, it was like a Mexican standoff and, he came to the dark side eventually. So he has taken no more meals by our hands or our tongs, and he has accepted every meal uh, rather eagerly. So, so we're pretty confident. Good. We're ready. We're ready for him to head back. 
that. That's great. That's great. Okay, well, let's talk about what you what you're talking about earlier. You said the harbor. Harbor was um, deemed non-releasable by Florida Fish and Wildlife. Harbor's a, a green sea turtle that was hit by a boat about two years ago down in Florida. Very common scenario. Um, so it was deemed non-releasable because he has what we call bubble butt syndrome. Um, I'm not name calling. It's a, it's a real thing. Um, so his injuries left his spine severed and his pelvis shattered and his back flippers more or less paralyzed. So because of his, after his wound therapy was completed at the Georgia sea turtle center in Jekyll Island in Georgia, um, he was deemed non-releasable because he couldn't keep his back end down and they felt like he would be a pretty good target for getting hit by another boat and be floating at the surface too much. So he needed a forever home. And when you talk about these dinosaurs that live to be 80 years old, um, it's a long commitment for an aquarium or a zoo to, to take one that you think is maybe 10 or 15 years old that will get to be 300 or 400 pounds. It's, it's quite the undertaking and it's quite the commitment. Um, but the Pittsburgh Zoo and PBG Aquarium always steps up to the plate. And so we were ready for um, a new buddy. So we brought Harbor on board, um, and he was actually our second green sea turtle that was deemed non-releasable. We had Sunburst, who also was hit by a boat, who also went through our non-releasable kind of get-to-know-ya, and um, she's no longer with us because she was released back into the wild. Well, here we are several years later, and we have Harbor, who had his limitations, and, you know, we we tried to run him through the same stepping stone process that we did with Sunburst um, years and years ago, and we just came to the conclusion, you know, six months ago that this turtle has passed every swimming test that I could put to him, um, has passed all of our benchmarks for what's a normal turtle behavior, and um, the final step in the process is to reach back out to Florida Fish and Wildlife and share video, share all of our enrichment and our design and our, our progress and Harbor's progress with them and ask them for their blessing or their feedback and see whether they believe, too, that he would be a really good candidate for the wild. And on Tuesday morning, I came back into work and they reviewed the video and um, we got the green light to take our green back. So it was very very exciting. Um, it's no surprise to me because I, I felt really good about him from the get-go, but it's really, really rewarding to take an animal that it's it's not a this the second chance for harbor or sunburst was a great it was gonna be a great ending no matter what. Either a really enriching environment in our zoo and our aquarium with tons of divers and sharks and great things to get into trouble with and meals all day long. Um, so they'd live a happy turtle life here and we'd love to have them and they're great for our visitors and very charismatic. Um, but to be able to take an animal that because we are not on the coast and we're not a standard rehabilitation facility, we are also a public we have this really great niche um, and Florida Fish and Wildlife has figured out how we can help them the most. We can take these turtles like Harbor and like Sunburst who are on the cusp. Um, they might be releasable, but you know, as it stands today, they, they can't be, but maybe let's wait and see. And we run them through our program and just give them a little bit of time and challenge them and increase depth and increase volume, um, atmospheric pressure on their shell, see what happens when they can kind of degas a little bit. And, um, and when they really have to compete for food because they're in there with our sharks and our teleos fish are zipping around and competing for food and places they can get stuck and trouble they can get into. We just throw the book at them and let them just turtle around and let them tell us what the next step should be. And, um, so that's the conclusion that we came down to. So we are so excited. I can't wait to get him back out to the beach. When we took Sunburst, it was the perfect day. 
we had Georgia Sea Turtle Center join us, and um, we we took Sunburst back to their facility to overnight, and they even kind of set up her tank all over again with their little name card and all of their docents and volunteers and rehab staff remembered Sunburst. And I remember being in their gift shop and wanting to do a little retail therapy and hearing the cashiers um, behind me talking and saying, did you hear Sunburst is back? She's back. She's going back out into the ocean. And everybody was completely buzzing about it. And we went out to the beach that day, the next day, and it was perfect skies. And there were over 200 people that came out to see Sunburst off to the ocean. And it was just amazing. I've just, I'll never forget it. So here we go again, two for two, you know? That's awesome. And it's, I think it's so great what you folks are doing at the Pittsburgh Zoo. Cause you know, there are people out there who are anti-zoo and this and that and think that, you know, zoos are just there for entertainment. But then when you see a zoo like the Pittsburgh Zoo, obviously it's a great educational animal ambassador, you know, oh, for yeah. an exhibit for visitors, but also the best choice would be, Hey, you know what? Let's release this turtle back to the wild where this turtle came from. I think that's great. That's such a great conservation, rescue, rehabilitation success story. I think it's awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're we're really proud of it. And it's just such a nice platform to be in, too, because, you know, Harbor's kind of an awkward-looking turtle. His, his hang-up is really that he can be at the bottom of his exhibit, he can be at depth, but he sort of kisses the bottom of the ground and his, his butt's kind of floating up in the water. And really what we try to do is decide... Do we perceive him to be uncomfortable because he's sleeping on his head? Because he's otherwise, when he's swimming around, he's perfectly neutral and flat. And it's really when he stops and turns or when he's resting. But he has adapted. And I have to tell you that although they are very simple-minded creatures with very big stomachs, um, I, I very much enjoy these animals. The thing that that they always remind me of is that are incredibly resilient. And it's such a nice reminder every single day, you know, no matter what we all go through in our daily lives, these guys have an uphill challenge from the day they hatch, if they even are lucky enough to make it out of the egg, if they're not eaten. And they're still here. They've been here since the age of the dinosaurs. And so when I see a turtle that is swimming a little different or acting a little awkward, before I go and give him a final sentence of this, that, and the other, um, I appreciate the feedback. I appreciate the recommendation, but let's see what you can do. And that way, I know I can rest my head on my pillow at night and say, if Harbor was meant to be here at the zoo, oh my goodness, what an amazing creature that we have. What a great ambassador and so many stories to tell. But what if, what if you just questioned everything a little bit more and just just dug a little deeper. Um, you could totally change the course for that animal. And there's plenty more that need to have this chance. So now rather than thinking of the next turtle in line and just getting any little um, turtle that needs a forever home, now we work with Florida Fish and Wildlife. At, they're sending me kind of their list of candidates and bios of turtles that fit a similar criteria so that we can try to maybe have more directed focus on how we can help these these turtles with the understanding that if they don't reach the same conclusion as Harbor or Sunburst, that, that they're ours to keep and we're happy to have them and we'll treat them well. So, yeah. So now, so is, is, is that going to be the plan with Cobb to put him in a larger exhibit and then see if he'll be able to be re-released or is he too aggressive for that? Oh no, he's, he's good to go. He's only been in rehab for a few months, so he can go right back out to the ocean. And, you know, we've, we do things like with them to, to prep them for release. We make sure they do live foraging, you know, what goes in comes out and, you know, they, but he hasn't been in, in rehab for long enough to lose any of his innate, you know, focus and features and life history strategies. So there's no concern over that. So he's a different scenario when you have, 
you know, Harbor's been in a closed setting for about two years, but some of these turtles are pre-endangered species that have nothing wrong with them, but it was before the times that it mattered what you took in. And there's perfectly healthy, you know, 30, 40 year old turtles that could be out in the ocean contributing to a gene pool that just might not get the chance because they've been in in captivity for so long. So, um, so Florida fish and wildlife is really excited to sift through the the kids that maybe he won't be able to contribute to the gene pool, but he's going to be a really great turtle to have back out in the ocean. So that's great. And I was just going to ask you something. I don't know if maybe you answer, answered it already because you said you didn't realize how resilient they were. But what is one thing or another thing you learned about sea turtles that you never knew before doing this or working with them? Oh, my goodness. Um, that you can never count a turtle out. Um, they are incredibly humbling. I will tell you that we have had cold stun cases that... Um, have come in and look like they are on death's doorsteps and you think, oh man, the next 48 hours are going to be very telling. And they might be the first ones that we release from that season. And then we have other turtles, you know, like Harbor that you kind of think, all right, you know, he might be here for a while. And then all of a sudden, you know, here you go. Um, or you have other cold stuns that, that looked really bad or, you know, looked really good and they just might be the last ones to go out or give you a little bit of a hang up. So they are incredibly humbling. No two seasons are the same. No two turtles are ever going to be the same. So I just kind of take each and every turtle case by case, whether we get 15 of them or 500 of them, you know, we'll be, we'll have to think through each and every one of them individually. No two seasons are the same, you know, whether, cause people always like to hit me up for predictors. Like, um, like I can tell what the cold stun season is going to be because of the weather and what we're having on shore is nothing like what's out in the ocean. Um, sometimes there's weather patterns that can give us an indication of like, Oh, this one, we're having a really warm fall. That means those turtles are hugging the shorelines and then eventually we're going to get a cold snap and they're going to get trapped. They're never going to make it to the Gulf stream. They're going to be on our doorsteps. Um, so we can anticipate that, but sometimes we can't anticipate the number. So um, I just, they are humbling. They're very humbling. They That's so interesting. Yeah, because re- reptiles, especially <laughs> turtles, like out here where I live, we have painted turtles. Mm-hmm. And the hatchling, actually, they their first year, they can actually be frozen solid. Oh, wow. Did you know that? Frozen I didn't. solid. It's <laughs> only for their first year. Yeah. And so we just had an issue. I just had a wildlife rehabilitator on the podcast and she found a hatchling turtle that came out maybe a little too early. Anyway, he was frozen solid and she thought, assumed that this guy was going to die. And she anyway was about to you know, dispose of him. And sure enough, he, he saw a little tail, a little twitch. Oh and uh, now he's doing great. <laughs> but it's, they're so resilient. That's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Um, okay, so really quick, Josie, everyone's wondering who's listening to this podcast. I mean, first of all, everyone loves sea turtles. How in the world did you land a job where you get to work with sea turtles? Like, there's not a lot of openings for something like this. <laughs> well, um, the truth is, I, I had never really worked with sea turtles prior to starting the Sea Turtle Second Chance program. My degrees in marine biology, I knew I wanted to be an aquarist at the PBG Aquarium. So that was a pretty easy answer. Um, but I had been in my career for about two years here as an aquarist and just kind of thought, all right. I feel pretty set in my, you know, day-to-day responsibilities. I think I'd like a challenge. And um, we kind of had a running joke in our department that everybody wanted a sea turtle on exhibits and uh, no one was going to throw his turtle on there because 
they can be pretty menacing for a display. They can eat up your corals. They can eat your fish. You know, I mean, you're, they can be big. So it wasn't going to happen easily. Um, so you, you have to be ready to take on the challenge. So I created a proposal for a way to bring them back here um, that would be in a very meaningful way that may be for exhibit, but maybe in a different sense. And that would... It doesn't do much for me to throw an animal on exhibit and just feed it every day. I like when there's um, action behind it. I like when there's a conservation message or something aquaculture to tinker with. That's just my nature. Um, so this was something that was always going to be this living, breathing organism, this challenge, this road ahead that would just morph into all these different things. And so um, the zoo graciously took a chance on me, gave me a second chance. On, and, uh, I was going to say, that's the name of your program, the second chance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was fitting for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think that it's really great to be able to show that sometimes the outcome might not be exactly what you expect, but it's always going to be better than doing nothing. And there's no excuses. We are such a no excuses facility and a no excuses program. You're never too far away from the coast. There's never too little resources. Um, everybody's strapped for a budget. It's the worst time of year, you know, to have staff when it's Christmas and Thanksgiving. Um, but everybody gets the job done and they are just some of my greatest friends. And I have the most respect for these colleagues because they give up a lot of themselves to just do the right thing. Um, so, and being in a public zoo and in a public aquarium is just the most fun because you can share that with everybody else. And it's very hard to get somebody involved in something they a television program and they don't get to touch or they don't have an experience with it on their own. Um, when we started the second chance program, we were in the, the recession. And so a lot of people weren't traveling very far. And when we had the little loggerhead hatchlings, my big push for that was this was the time that people may not ever be able to see themselves affording a trip to the beach or so staycations. We had a really great spike in attendance because people were utilizing museums and zoos and staying closer to home as their vacation because just money was tight. So we still were able to reach a really wide audience with a really special special message. On the flip side, there might have been people that may never, ever afford to see a sea turtle in their life, and we can have that for them, and we can give them that experience. So um, so it just became this cause that I took, and I love Western Pennsylvania. I was born and raised you know, in the Pittsburgh area, and I, we could do this program anywhere. It's happening all over the place, but it's it's where we're doing it that's unique and I love making this zoo shine. And so it was kind of my, my personal thing for my kids and, um, and the folks that I love that this is the place that I want to make special. So it's a program that's evolving that everybody wraps their arms around and we're excited to see where it goes. That's great. You guys are doing such a great job and so much dedication. And just one last, I guess, do you have any advice for anyone at home thinking, oh, I live in Idaho or, oh, I live out in the middle of Montana. How can I help sea turtles? How can people help sea turtles? Well, I think that it's important to spread the message that, you know, it's, it seems kind of mundane, um, but litter, whatever you put out there is going to end up in the ocean. And these poor little turtles have such teeny tiny little brains um, that and just big, big stomachs that they want to eat anything that they can. Um, I would love to be able to send everybody to a beach to do a beach cleanup um, and, you know, really get all hands on deck. But really, it's the simple stuff that we all can do every day anywhere you live that has an impact on our oceans. So, um, and these guys are just kind of at the top. So pick up after yourself and, and take care of, you know, 
being mindful of your your moves and what you're consuming and, you know, plastics and bags, you know, there's such a a great way to reduce your carbon footprint. And we're all kind of about that nowadays anyway. But um, I think people who are inland and maybe, you know, in a location like yours just might think that what they do won't necessarily impact that environment. But the simple truth is it does and it will. So it's just as important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've all seen, I'm sure you've seen that viral video on YouTube and Facebook of the straw being pulled out of the sea turtle's nose. Have you seen that one? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's the least of their worries. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Josie, thank you so much. Do you have anyone, I guess, any last pieces of advice for anyone who wants to pursue a career like yours, maybe wanting to work for sea, you know, with sea turtles or wanting to become a marine biologist for our young listeners? Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's, you know, I'm sure Henry had said it earlier too. It's a passion driven job. I mean, um, you do it because you love it. And if you work hard for it, it's a very competitive field, but, um, if you stick with it, it is totally worth it every single day. And we all have a choice, you know, we can do our eight to five and you can feed fish and you can do your responsibilities and and do just fine. But you have this really amazing platform in any zoo or any aquarium to reach such a wide audience. And, what a unique gift that is. What a privilege that is to be a part of a place that you can really be the one person that might inspire somebody to be the next really great oceanographic explorer who will make a really great change. So for as many tours as we do and things that might seem very day in and day out, I I always um, look forward to that possibility to interact with visitors and our public. And, and it's so nice to be on with you in this program because um, it just takes one person. It just takes a person to do something really big and really important. And you just never know who that person's going to be. I really cherish the ability to be able to reach so many visitors and to be able to maybe reach out to that one person who's going to really make a difference or, you know, the difference or fit the need for what's important at the moment. Um, so it's a, it's a important position to be in. And I don't take it for granted. That's awesome. Well, Josie, thank you so much. You were so great on the podcast. I learned so much about sea turtles. I know our (laughs) listeners did. I'm serious. I think it was really, really inspirational for someone too, who wanted to pursue a, uh, just a similar career. And I think it's great that you sent this proposal and got the zoo to, you know, approve this and you and your associates are doing an amazing job. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thanks. Well, you'll have to join us uh, when we head down to take Harbor back. When is it? (laughs) <laughs> I have my we, calendar right here. We don't Justin. have we don't have a date set, but I have my eye set on World Sea Turtle Day, which is June 16th. So I think that would be a whole lot of fun. That I have is, a date set uh, yet. We're working on it. That sounds good. I think World Sea Turtle Day is pretty good. I think it I, would be a good tie-in. Seems appropriate. I think we'll be able to pull something together. Right. Awesome. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Josie. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.